So uh, you've probably talked about it elsewhere, but talk about alternative commencement, how it came about, and uh, what you, what the highs and the lows were for you. Um, uh, do you want to know why we did it, or do you yeah. want to know? Okay. Um, well, I think there were lots of there were as many reasons that people did it as there were people, as is the case with every organization or group, um, but. Cheney got invited to speak. BYU invited Bush. Bush said no. Then Cheney offered to speak, so they had him come to speak. And everybody was all abuzz about it on campus. And since discussion night's kind of the base for a lot of uh, planning for different things, everybody's like, so are we having a discussion night about it, blah, blah, blah. So I started thinking about it and then came up with this idea with my friend Evan to have an alternative commencement. And... Uh, we pitched the idea, and people liked it, and we started planning for it. And then um, my ideas just went galloping away, and I was trying to hold on. And we invited, you know, Ralph Nader and Jack Healy and Pete Ashdown, and it started getting bigger and bigger. We had to raise $20,000 and in, like, 14 days or something like that. And... Um, get a venue, do all this crazy stuff. But, I mean, a lot of people did it strictly because they opposed Dick Cheney. Um, a lot of people did it because of issues of political neutrality. A lot of people did it for um, community reasons, um, because Provo is very divisive, you know, and they were trying to have a conversation about politics. I personally felt like it was important because I feel that um, when there is not, when I did it because of uh, personal liberty issues, and I feel like BYU does not allow for people to apply the lessons that they learn in school to their institution, and that is what I'm most afraid of, when institutions will not let people apply the principles of the institution to the institution itself at the time when it most needs it. And so that's why I thought it was important to protest and uh, I think that if you can have a conversation about things, people have to give you reasonable arguments about why they did what they did. And so it was basically just an effort to create a conversation and to, and to show people that we wanted a conversation and that we would find our own way of having it if we weren't allowed to have it where we should have been able to have it, which was at our campus. What were the hardest parts about uh, that whole thing for you? Um, well, frankly, being raised the way that I was, I have a really, really hard time still figuring out the proper relationship between compassion and criticism because I feel like I can understand pretty, or I feel like I have a lot of empathy for why people do what they do, even if they do heinous things. And I feel like, you know, I can even understand the institutional kind of, um, I can understand how institutions make people who are maybe good people do things that aren't necessarily the best and make decisions that might not be the best. So I feel that strongly and I want to be fair-minded and so I have a really hard time figuring out how to stand up for the right things so that things will change but also understand why people have done what they've done, whether that be Dick Cheney or the BYU administration or whatever. And that causes a riot in my chest. I can't figure it out. I've been working on it for so long and so I would stay up till 3 a.m. at night thinking, am I being a Christ-like person? Am I being compassionate? What is the right way to dissent? Is this the right thing to do? Uh, one of the hardest things for me was having that 
extra kind of courage to do something that isn't set up for you, that you have to create for yourself, that you and your friends have to create for yourself. Another, hardest, another one of the hardest parts was I just got so depressed by the way that my, the way that Mormons talk about things. It is, we are impoverished arguers. We can't argue with people who don't already agree with us. And so I would read the Daily Universe editorial section and it was just fallacy land on both sides because the minority feels embattled, the majority feels embattled, and bad thinking runs muck. And I think it's really unfortunate. And people would say, well, when the prophet has spoken, he's spoken. There were just truisms abounding. And people on the other side of the issue would, you know, would spew forth truisms and platitudes. And it was so hard for me to hear constantly that I was doing either a bad or a good job for reasons that I considered to be bad reasons, you know? I don't think that I lose... The hardest thing for me, frankly, was having people tell me that I had lost my faith when I was doing something that I thought was, was for me, profoundly faithful that required more real faith than anything that I've done in my whole life. So, and that also required me to consider faith in a more rigorous way than I ever have in my life. And I felt like it's so unfortunate that our, that our like founding virtues and our founding principles have become evaluative terms, epithets that we throw at people. If you do this, you're faithless. If you do this, you're faithful. And rather than terms that can guide us in our lives, that was really sad for me. I had a really hard time with that. And what were the great joys? Um, the great joys, uh, seeing that... Did you get to pick Ralph Nader up at the airport? Uh-huh. That's got to be cool. Yeah, that was really cool. Uh, he, yeah. What, I, were, what, what was he wearing, boots? He was, he was wearing a really old suit and really old shoes, just your average <laughs> low-maintenance kid. But um, I liked talking to him on the way down about the Mormon church, and he's really direct and really stern and not afraid of any issue. And so he'd say... Why does, if the Mormon church, the whole way down to the co commencement, he praised the Mormon church and he said, oh, this and this. And he would say, Ashley, tell Matt, Matt was his assistant, about the radical concept of Mormon charity. And I'd say, okay. And I'd try to tell Matt. And then he commanded Matt to go on a Mormon mission. And that was pretty funny. And then on the way back, though, he had criticisms. He said, why, if your church was so radical, is it so unimaginative now and why this and why that. I like talking to somebody about that. Another joy was just to see that a group of very disparate people, and we were very disparate, I had really radical opinions about things, other people had pretty centrist opinions about things, the group was very, very diverse. And to see everybody cooperate to do something that no one could have done by themselves was incredible. And the best part about it I didn't expect, I expected it to be incredible, but I did not expect it to be as spiritually and um, inspiring as it was for me. And when the actual commencement happened and I was there that night, I wept almost the entire time because it was so beautiful to see a community that was usually so divided, that might have still been very divided, at least be sitting in the same room 
some of them, and to have people who had felt ostracized their entire lives from Mormonism and felt like they couldn't even call themselves Mormon, be able to see that there was something in Mormonism that they recognized in themselves. That was really beautiful for me, really moving, and I loved that part of it the best. So, How many people came? Um, well, KSL said there were 200, um, but I think there were 1,500 people, and then... Um, Wait, 200 versus 1,500? Yeah, we got really... There are some... Oh, KSL's, are you thinking, is church-owned? and so Yeah, they just said that we had 200 people there, which, if you can count in any way, is just simply not true. Okay. But, um... So definitely at least, a th what would you say your minimum? Mm, minimum... Your most conservative. Minimum 1,000, so... Yeah, because I heard 200, I'm like, well, that's kind of cool, but... Yeah, I mean, there were a lot. I mean, we did it in the McKay Event Center because that was the only place that would let us come and have our event um and so there are eight thousand seats in there and so it it's hard to make it look full but yeah there were there were lots of people there and lots of people listening online and stuff like that so it was really amazing so um for yourself or for or for um friends and and peers are there any aspects of your mormon experience that that you're struggling with today or um, or and do you have types of friends or peers uh, that are suffering or feeling ostracized or alienated or in pain in any way that you have deep empathies for talk about yourself and then talk about um, where there might be need for reevaluation and maybe even reflection and improvement within how we deal with each other within the Mormon culture and the church? Um, let's see. I feel uh, really strongly that that church should not be about any person over another person. And it might seem like that's what I'm advocating when I say we need to change the methodology, we need to change it. But really what I'm saying is I believe that we could create a structure that would allow everybody to feel like they could speak. And I know that that's what we've tried to do, but it's not working. And there are people who go to church and feel, because of some unwritten rule or some very strong cultural presence in the room, that they can't say what they feel and that church is just about one thing, which you know to them might be telling unbelievable stories that are supposed to make things seem okay when it doesn't make things seem okay for those people. And I don't think that church should be just about those people. I think it should be about everyone. And if we could include in our conversations in church why something might not be true or why someone might not believe something or how we could interpret something differently and we could, we could allow people to be honest about their experiences and not ashamed of those experiences and talk openly together, I think... I could have the same feeling in church that I had that night at Alternative Commencement. Not that just like all my people were there and everybody agreed with me, but that people were given a chance, a fair chance to speak. And that's what I believe. And my friends who have left have left because of those reasons, frankly, most of them. Some of them have left because of doctrinal reasons or historical reasons, but most of them have left because they couldn't stand feeling like a bad person for doing what they thought was the best thing they could do with their character. 
or at least a good thing that they did with their character. And so I would, uh, the people I feel deep empathy for are the people who uh, follow the question where it goes and end up in a place that is not recognized as, as valuable or as virtuous to us. And I have always had like a profound lament and torment for them in my brain and for myself a lot of times too, frankly. Um, because sometimes I feel like if you really follow out certain ideas, even gospel ideas within the gospel, and you reach a certain point, it's odd that you could follow the gospel out of the gospel, but that's sometimes what it feels like. And um, I feel like the people I respect the most are the people who did not allow uh, the era that they were born in and the arguments that were designed to keep people acting a certain way within that area. I admire the people who didn't let that keep them from having integrity. And I feel bad for the unimaginative way that we censure and criticize those people within Mormonism. And I feel bad for the epithets that we have for people who leave and people who I think have done something that is profoundly conscionable, um, who didn't end up with the right outcome and in our minds. And so I would just dream of a, of a church setting in which the process was more important than the product and that people were rewarded and praised for having integrity wherever it led them and that they could talk openly about things in an environment where people would respond to each other in love. And that similarly, someone who believed and had always believed could also feel comfortable saying those things in church. Um, that's kind of, that's what I envision. But yeah, I do, I feel really, really frustrated because I feel like sometimes when I feel like something is unfair, there are a lot of manufactured virtues, and I do think that they're generally manufactured, that praise people who give up the question or who give up the journey, and I think that's really tragic. So. So, uh, what are your favorite things about the church? What do you love about the church? I love that. I love that we get to teach each other. I love that there is uh, lay clergy, however you would say that. I love that we're teachers and that we're given that responsibility, which I consider to be more sacred than any responsibility. And I love that. Um, we have uh, this heritage of people who were visionaries, who were uh, social reformers, maybe not in the way that we understand those terms today, but um, in a very real way, and who saw a vision for the world and considered, I think that we have a heritage of, of ancestors in our church who have lived personally prophetic lives, and I think that's beautiful, and I think it's uh, beautiful, the idea that everybody in our church is, in some sense, a personal prophet for themselves. And, uh, and I love that we're supposed to go to church with each other every Sunday, even if it's agonizing. I love church, and um, I love that we're supposed to take care of each other. And um, I love that we're supposed to learn to like people who, by some geographical sleight of hand, ended up living by us. I think that's beautiful. I think that the spirit of sacred obligation is one of the most beautiful Christian concepts that I know of. And I don't think you can practice it unless you're forced into certain 
groups and organizations that make you practice it fully. And um, also love that really the way the church is set up, even if there are cultural checks on this, you can make the church in so many ways what you want it to be. And every calling, every structure, well, not maybe every structure, but most structures are invitations to make something into what you dreamed of it, it what you dreamed it to be. Visiting teaching is one of the most incredible things to me in, uh, that I can think of, that you have a responsibility for someone that you might not have known otherwise. And I think it's sad the way we trivialize those things sometimes in the church, but the fact that we have these callings, really, I guess it's what I'm talking about, callings, that allow us, give us an excuse to be good and give us, uh, give us an excuse to bring our vision to something to be helpful, it's beautiful. I love that. Have you ever read uh, Sunstone or Dialogue or uh, been to a Sunstone Symposium? And if so, what are your thoughts on their role in your life, in the church's history, and in their importance to people today? Um, I've been to one symposium um, just recently when I spoke. I was invited to speak, and I loved it. And um, I had read Sunstone before um, and Dialogue for various reasons. I hadn't read a lot, but I'd read it for various reasons, and um, I had read it a lot when I was researching Heavenly Mother stuff and it was one of the only places that I could find that had Mormon information on that stuff. I believe in Sunstone and Dialogue um, and I believe that they're important because so many other traditions have great, these beautiful histories of people in their religion who commented on their religion and I think we need people like that um, who can intellectually, emotionally, philosophically and spiritually comment on what our religion means, what it could mean, etc. And I think people need that. And if there's not that in our religion, um, then they'll have to find other places, which is good, but it's profoundly valuable to have it within our own tradition. I also think that the way that some people respond to Sunstone is indicative of what I think is a, a very unfortunate sickness in the way that we view religion and uh, and and thinking and stuff, you know, it's stigmatized in some ways and people say, um, oh, well, sunstone, <laughs> you know, I think that's really, really unfortunate to, to think that that isn't part of our tradition, to know in every way that we can know, to know with our minds, to know with our hearts, to know through conversation, to know through compromise, and I think there should, I emphatically believe that there should be a place where people can explore a question or a belief as far as they need to explore it to feel like they have integrity when they finally say I believe or do not believe in this and I think they should be able to do it in a community of people who can also speak who can check them who can counter them who can love them whatever they need in order to have the most robust spiritual and intellectual experience that they can but more importantly much more importantly than that even um, is you know, to have a place where they can feel like they can follow the principles of the gospel as far as they need to take them to have integrity. And the fact that we consider that a side hobby or divorce from our culture or our church or our religion is disturbing to me. It's not, it's not personal preference, it's what everyone should do. 
And so I think it's very important to have a place for that. Any final thoughts you wanted to share? Um, Messages, feelings? I guess I just, I believe very strongly that every good thing is attention. And I think not attention, but a space tension. And um, I think that those tensions are valuable. So the tension that I feel going to church is valuable and instructive to me spiritually and emotionally. And the tension in the idea of faith is valuable and instructive to people. And the tension in the idea of love, the tension between institutions and individuals, I think that those tensions are actually the, thing, the things that are teaching us spiritually. And I think that sometimes we view them as impediments, as something that we'll get over one day when we get to an absolute state or we are happy or when we know something or when we believe something. But I believe that the purpose of, of those virtues and those ideas is actually to keep tension alive in us. So we're always doing the best kind of thinking and the best kind of living. And we're always practicing faith um, to reconcile those tensions from moment to moment. So I believe in anything that promotes that, and I think religion is supposed to promote that maybe more than almost anything. So that is one testimony that I have, is a testimony of tension, which may sound strange, but that's what I believe in, I think, the very most. So. What are the pillars of your faith? Um, I think one of the pillars of my faith has come from taking seriously the idea that uh, God is our Father, that we have a Heavenly Father and a Heavenly Mother, and that that is our relationship to them. And that makes me understand the other pillars of my faith better, what faith would mean, how, to, how you come to get to know somebody. But it has led to one of the pillars of my faith, which is that I feel like I must honor and reverence somebody who loves me with real knowledge of who I am and who is a better person than I am but who still gives me my autonomy. To love somebody and to give them autonomy at the same time when you may know more than they do is I think what it means to be godly among other things. I believe in the church because I think it teaches people to do that, to love somebody enough to have it hurt if they don't choose what we wish for them but to grant them their autonomy as well. And that tension, I think, makes people godly, and I believe in that. And uh, I don't care as much if the church is true as if it makes me true, and I think that the church makes people true if they'll let it make them true. And I, one thing that I believe um, comes from my friend's mom. She's Muslim, and my friend is Mormon, and she asked her mom, so why is it that you're Muslim? What about this in Mormonism? What about this in Islam? What about this? And her mom interrupted her, and she said, all I've ever tried to do is honor what is familiar in me, and I believe that um, that is one of the most beautiful pillars of faith that you could have, to honor what's familiar in you. And I believe that means different things for a, an LDS person. It means honoring the spirit, honoring your divine nature, honoring what God has for you to do and honoring other people in the way that you feel called to honor them. I believe in that. I believe that we have missions on this earth and things that we can do. Um, and 
I believe, um, I believe in something, I believe in practicing, and I believe that uh, humility and love and all those other things aren't satellite virtues orbiting off somewhere. I believe that you become humble when you care enough about blessing other people that you keep returning and trying again and that your goal is not to be right and that your goal is not to be good right away but to act in the moment that you are called to act and that you go back when you have acted and it didn't work or it did and you thank God for it and I guess what I mainly believe in is the spirit of reverence that religion gives people and the spirit of honor and everything that honor entails. And I think honor entails a lot of ambiguity, and I think the ambiguity requires great love from people because it requires uh, attention. And, and I believe that all the things I could say that are more traditional church virtues like faith and repentance, they all have to do with honoring in some way, and they all have to do with practicing in some way, and they all have to do with loving people while granting them autonomy. That's what I believe.